0: Folks, welcome back to another episode of the Boombastic Cast. That's right, the very one. The cast of Boom, the boom that casts its reel into the ocean of life, reels in a big old fish and a big old hawk at the same time, catches the hawk when it goes in the air, catches the fish when it goes in the water, and it gets reeled into your fucking households and cars right now as you listen to the Boombastic Cast. How's everybody doing out there? Wow! Oh, you're i are doing I, fine, Mister Fisher. I could hear them from home. I heard, I heard them roaring in their households and automobiles. Yeah. Alexander Hawk, how you doing?
1: I'm doing good. How are you doing? Doing
0: all right. Doing all right. Not too shabby. Nice, bright Saturday morning. We woke up alive, so I guess that's a good thing, right? And that's what they keep on telling me. Yeah, it depends who you ask. I hear. So, speaking of waking up not alive. Um, we recently were talking about a director that we were, we were, we were like, what, sh- what director should we try and reach out to attempt to have on the show? And this name came up. And by golly, less than a week later, um, the poor guy died out. Now, he died at a, the tender age of 91. So he got a good life in there. And as you know, we're going to roll through this. He had quite a career with the films and the TV. Um, that filmmaker is Mr. Richard Donner. You know what I mean? R.I.P. And um, very sad stuff. You know what I mean? Uh, he, gigantically influential. You know what I mean? Uh, he was born in the Bronx, April 24th, 1930. The Bronx, New York. You know, it's a good area. A lot of history with that area. New York's one of those special places that ha- holds so much history, so much creative, cool stuff. Have Has, you know, crossed those streets breathe that air That is just a cool environment to be in. You know, he died on July fifth, two thousand twenty one, aged ninety one. Um and yeah, Los Angeles. He made his way all the way to California. He traveled all the way to the West Coast. Um, you know, of course we get you know there's films that everybody I think that, and he's one of those the way I like to talk about the directors that are able to go back and forth within genre. You know what I mean? That's something I appreciate a lot. Uh, and this is one of those people. He could bounce around and do a little bit of everything. You know what I mean? Including kid, kids' movies, which I feel are incredibly difficult to probably pull off. I've never done one. But dealing with kids and dealing with all the scheduling of that, making sure that you hit humor that is, is relatable to a parent but enjoyable to a kid, I think there's a very there's a big dynamic there's a lot of room for failure in there and for this gentleman who made The Goonies quite possibly the greatest the most popular biggest children's movie of all time um you know masterfully masterfully makes it look easy makes it look damn near easy you know what I mean yeah but uh I figured with this episode we you know we've been to also been talking about doing a segment on directors for Many Moons um, That's how the Checking the Gate Came about uh, And this is the first one of those Hopefully this will be kick off one of our new uh, Favorite segments And uh, what we're going to do Is just kind of take a little look back at the old career You know the career, some of the films Some of the, some of the more popular films That uh, maybe some of the less popular films That we enjoy That uh, Mr. Donner was known for You know what I mean um, real quickly, you know, I know that he, he, everybody had good things to say about Donner, you know what I mean? He, you know, it was one of those things. Even before he died, he was one of those people everybody had something good to say about him. Um, so that, that goes a long way, you know what I mean? And we'll give a couple, we got IMDB open, so we'll give a couple uh, Trey his trademarks. You know, he frequently would cast Mel Gibson as well as Steve Kahan. Man, you remember, I haven't seen Steve Kahan in, in a long time. Features human-free human false stunts in nearly all his films. Long shots looking at actors through gaps in scenery and in between other actors and scenes. Shots from the waist level or below looking up at actors. Frequently cast Danny Glover. I noticed they didn't put Danny Glover and Mel Gibson next to each other. I wonder if that was for a reason. <laughs> uh, movies have a glossy look or a feel to them. Often inserts lines of dialogue or places, uh, PSA posters, stickers for animal rights, human rights, and gun control. I know he was a big advocate of that, yeah. you know, animal rights and stuff and against fur and how that's not cool, killing off the animals for the fur, which it isn't cool. You know what I mean? They make enough fake stuff nowadays, just go with the fake. You, you eat fake food, you might as well wear fake fur, you know what I mean? Yeah.
1: I mean, the thing is that uh, one of the things that I always enjoyed about uh, Mr. Donner was yeah. the fact that he he always, in, in, in his films, always try to put a little bit of a commentary, whether it's a fantasy, whether it's an action film, you know. And he'll give you everything that you want in that with the humor and the action and all that. But he also has, like, a commentary on whether it's about, you know, race relations, whether it's about animal rights, whether it's, you know, things like that. And another thing that I appreciated about him, I, I, uh, I listened uh, to a few interviews with people who talked about Richard Donner. And uh, two of the things that I found interesting, which makes me appreciate him more, was the fact that, uh, first, they said he was a big fan of kids, all right? Huh. So and and since he did the Goonies and uh, and that and Radio Flyer too, you know, very children oriented films that are, are are very good films. And yeah. then also, firstly, as far as I'm concerned, my personal favorite Richard Donner film was the movie Lady Hawk. Right now, that was a um, a, a fantasy uh, type film. And it was said that when that came across his desk, he was not a fan of fantasy. He really didn't uh, think or or want to, you know, well, Matt says he liked to jump from genre to genre. Fantasy was kind of on the extreme low end of that genre for him. But he decided to take it upon and he tackled it while keeping the fantasy elements, but uh, tackled it as more of a romance film. Yeah. And and the thing is what I appreciate is the fact that he while while given a chance to do these films that he might not naturally either want to or excited to do, he always took stuff that wasn't, you know, comfortable for him. Right. He took chances. He someone says, okay, this just do a, a, a family children's movie, and he's like, I don't like kids, but you know what? I'm going to do it, and, I, and he made one of the best children movies out there, and oh. that's what I appreciate, is that, you know, a lot of directors are like, well, you know, I do horror, I do fantasy, I do, you know, this type of film, and they stay in that film, and they do a great job with that genre or that type of film, but a lot of Directors, you know, don't take the risk to say, oh, I might be known for, like, romantic comedies, but I want to do a, a a war movie or a horror movie, something totally different. Now, Richard, he would get a film or see a film that might not be in a genre or, uh, or something that he, he was a big fan of, but he would look at it and he would find what he... With, he would connect to in the story, and then he would take that story, and he would make it really good. And that's what I appreciate, him because he didn't play it safe. Right, and he was like a,
0: re- a rebel in his own uh, in his own sense. I mean, he came up at a different time. You know what I mean? Um, when we think of rebel, we think a lot of people that are over the top, zany, maybe dressed apart. You know, he comes from a time where they didn't people didn't really dress the part that much or whatever. But they they had the rebellious mind, and um, you know, I've re- I've heard interviews with him before where he, he's he's like very he knows what he wants. He was a masterful filmmaker, you know what I mean? He's like one of those filmmakers that unfortunately they're all dying out. But like, they go in there. Like the director thing, you know, like almost like we're just standing next to them. They carry a presence about themselves that you have to respect. You know what I mean? You're, um, you could almost get some intimidation. They're real true leaders of these ships, so to speak. Whereas in some nowadays, you might be standing next to the director and think that it's the, the guy who just started the PA work yesterday. You know what I mean? Um, and we're not body shaming. We're not We're not intimidation shaming here at the Boombasticat. But to go to the, into the kid thing, I know that there was a story that Corey Feldman told about the Goonies where uh, he said that, that, you know, Donner got a bad rap for being a dude who supposedly hated kids. Um, he said that he worked really good. He said, he said the way that he, direct, he directed them was like he was a big kid himself. He said there was one time uh, that I'm pretty positive it was Donner. He said Donner made him cry on set. Um, but it was only because he was he, – he, he, he admittedly was Feldman was admittedly dicking off and not like paying attention and like trying to be a kid, you know, in fun and games when he should be listening and taking direction. And he, he said that Donner had to say something to him about it and it made him cry. Um, but who's to say what it was that was said to him. And he did say that after the fact, you know, Donner did come over and feel terrible about it, you know, and consoled him and stuff like that. And uh, so, which is good. It's positive. But it's a good deal. And the Feldman, the way the Feldman's like, the Feldman throws it like, Usually, when he's throwing somebody's name out there, they're usually doing something super foul. So, like, it was good that, like, when Feldman's throwing your name out there, be happy that it's th- a good story about you know you you, you be you doing what you should be doing, which is I don't I don't fault Donner in that situation. You know, and that we're kind of in a weird time where so you, you automatically would go. Oh, the kids started crying; the, the adults automatically to blame but you don't know, take into consideration the kid could have been being a kid you know sometimes a kid needs to be put in check you know just the way it is and adults sometimes too but I thought that was a good story I always thought that was a fun story that it, you know it's it's a weird line you need that but that's like within a good director I feel is like being able to ride that line that like yeah you it can be fun in games and it should be Nobody should be hating showing up on set, but there should be a, a sense of seriousness and, uh, you know, the vibe of uh, something professional is being done. So you guys are trying to do something special, and it's not just a bunch of friends showing up to have fun. Like, the intention is to create this good film. It's not to have fun. Sometimes people lose track of that. doesn't make them bad people, you know? So you're, you're in a fun environment. You're doing what you want to be doing. Sometimes you and lose track, and then he's going to jump back on, on track, you know what I mean? But, I, yeah, all I heard from about him was good things, you know what I mean? We got a couple fun trivia things we'll roll into before we kind of pop into his career. Uh, it was funny. He, he never hired the same composer twice. He did it once with Jerry Goldsmith, but he never used the score. That, which I thought was interesting, because Jerry Goldsmith is a fucking gigantic composer, you know what I mean? Huge. Um, next up, you know, he frequently made uncredited appearances in all those films. I could appreciate that. That goes all the way back to the Alfred days with the Hitchcock man himself, not Hitchhawk, Hitchcock,
1: Hitchcock,
0: <laughs> um, which you definitely should direct under the alias Alexander Hitchcock. <laughs>
1: um,
0: okay. originally directed Superman, uh, and Superman two back to back and then cut, cut back the filming sequels to focus on finishing the first one for a Christmas release. A clash with producers Alexander Salkind and Aya Salkind over the material led to Donner being fired before he could finish filming. The second one, uh, and he was replaced by Richard Lester. Donner later estimated that he had directed 80% of the sequel and saw about 50% of his work in the theatrical film. Now, I know that he had a weird issue with those producers where uh he one of them he said there was was like a son and a father type deal i think they probably came from somewhere else and brought uh, a lot of green stuff with them and i guess the son kind of wanted to make the movie and the father kind of was doing it to please the son put up the money probably let his son kind of be the face of it as the producer and run around unsaid being a madman like things we've heard about and um that the, the father, he's like the son was pretty cool, but the father was just like they were every penny they could save. They try and do it, and Richard Donner, you know, bless his heart, was like, "Yo, when you're making a fucking movie like we're making, you can't be fucking pinching pennies when you're trying to make a superhero type movie." And and he said, he's like, even when he made it, he said, even in the time we made it, like you can't be pinching pennies. Like as a, as to now, like there's no way I, you could almost imagine. The way that Superman, Richard Donner's Superman, is kind of straightforward shot. Kind of like what I would assume, assume a Kevin Smith a superhero movie to be shot. The um, that You can almost wrap your head around making that. But now, look, try and wrap your head around having no money making a superhero movie of today with all the CGI and the big sets and all that. It's just impossible. You know, and there was big sets on that Superman movie, but shit that you could recreate in a warehouse because that's what they were doing. You know, you can't create a whole nother world. Unfortunately, uh, I guess you can with technology, but I guess even though technology, you know, technology, it's gotten crazier, but it is kind of, if you know what you're doing, you could still master it on a lo- very low budget level, even more so with the green screens and stuff. Um, but it's one of those things. Now he kept both one eyed Willie's head and a model for the ship from the Goonies. Aside from directing the film, he has an uncredited cameo as one of the sheriffs on the squad, uh, on the quads, as the Goonies exit the cave with the ship. He's one, the one with the gray hair. Producer Spiel, uh, Spielberg instructed the cast members to act cold and distant toward Donner on the last week of filming, which puzzled him. Shortly after filming rap, Donner went to his beach house in Hawaii, ran into a frenzied neighbor who took up his entire day. When he arrived home, the entire cast was there with Donner to celebrate with a cookout. Spielberg flew them over to Hawaii on the promise that they not speak a word of the surprise to Donner, which prompted them to act the way they were on the last week of filming. So that's kind of weird that they gave up, they were real cold and distant to him on the last week and didn't tell him. Uh, and then, you know, and then the, 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 the picture wraps. I kind of think that's that's bogus because like the wrap of a picture is very, very fucking important. You know, it's very it's a it's a, it's a cele- celebration. You know what I mean? You want to get pictures. You want to give the hugs and handshakes and all that good stuff and congratulations. And you feel I feel like he didn't get that with this cast, which is kind of uh, kind of like a weird setup when you think about it. You know what I mean? But that's cool that he brought them all uh, brought him all over. If anything, we heard about good old Hollywood. We wouldn't want to throw that on Mr. Donner, especially on, 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 the, on the wake of his death. Things will come out about Spielberg, but we'll, uh, we'll save that for his tribute episode. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: um, he directed his cousin, Steve Cahan, as mentioned before, in 14 films, you know what I mean, who looks just like him. Uh, he was actively pursued by Michael Crichton to direct Jurassic Park in 1993. Michael Crichton, of course, he directed himself in the beginning, you know, what I, mean? I think he did the adrenal adrenal sc- strain or whatever it is that he wrote. He's a, he's mainly known for writing. He's a writer, mm-hmm. uh, but he did hit, try his hand at directing. There was a couple of the hand people uh, writers that tried their hand at directing, uh, like Peter H. Blatley or whatever his name is. The dude who wrote Jaws directed a few things. Um, so yeah, it was interesting. They were, and I think it's cool. You know, was a, I think an author is a good person to give. Uh, good, the reins to a degree, if they want it, don't just throw them there because directing is different than telling a story, but if they have, you know, the ambition to direct it, they can already tell the story. So you're all good. Uh, Jurassic Park, I uh, would have been interesting. I do think Spielberg did Spielberg probably had a better, better take on it. I'm kind of glad Spielberg ended up doing it, but, um, love Daughter. Um, I think Donner even realized what the case was. When you come into big creature effects, it almost, Jurassic Park is as much a kid movie as it is an adult movie. Um, And realistically, those are the two dudes, Donner and Spielberg, maybe Zemeckis. You know, those are the people that I trust with something like that.
1: Yeah, actually, it's funny that uh, you brought that up. On Netflix right now, they have, like the second season of the movies that made us, and right. uh, and they have episodes on Jurassic Park, on Forrest Gump, on um, uh, Back to the Future. Yeah. It was interesting. I watched all of them. They're pretty good insight into the creating of these great classic films. Yeah, it's a good franchise.
0: Yeah. You know what I mean? That show. Yeah. I guess I can't call it a franchise. There's two of them though. There's there's Toys That Made Us and there's Movies That Made Us. And yeah. they're both very they're both very I don't know what you'd wanna call them groups well, of I, shows that are all connected.
1: Yeah, all right, a I get the franchise.
0: That's gotta be considered a franchise.
1: I would. I mean I mean uh for my experience, I mean I, I do have to admit I'm not a huge um I don't watch a lot of documentaries but right. the way they intercut the, the movies with clips and all that and the interviews and all that is extremely fun. I, I have to say it's probably the most fun I've had watching a documentary is both uh, both as, as Matt said, the toys that made us and also the movies that made us.
0: Those pop culture doc's and television shows are a big deal. With that being said, me and Tony got, our, got got two docs and an anthology coming. So be on the lookout, and we're about part of those. Though you like VHS docs, or you know all that, all you know horror horror uh, docs. Check out the Tony Newton docs, video nasties, and all that good stuff. He was asked to direct the fourth Superman film, The Quest for Peace. He considered it alongside Tom Mankiewicz, uh, who had been the writer of the first two Superman films, but ultimately both Donner and Mankiewicz declined as they had other projects to deal with at the time. Uh, he was actively pursued. Oh, no, that was my bad. He was considered a direct Batman and had Mel Gibson in mind for the role of Batman. That's an interesting take on it. Uh, Mel Gibson actually probably would have been a decent Batman. Um, I, I am happy that Tim Burton made it with, with yeah. Michael Keaton, but it would have been that would have been an interesting take. It wouldn't have been as dark. At least I, I don't think it would have. But who's to well, say? Dark. The I mean, dark.
1: I mean, I think it would have been. It would have been darker than Superman, of course. Well, it would have been. It would have been a lot, a lot darker. If yeah, I think if if if. I mean, the thing is with Mel Gibson. I mean, that'd be interesting because he can definitely uh, tap into the kind of the crazy that you kind of need for Batman. Yeah. But but the thing is with Batman, you got to play not only the craziness, but I mean, while Mel Gibson can really, you know, go into like the over the top crazy. Yeah. With Batman, like Michael Keaton is a perfect example where he can do also the subtle crazy. And that's what I think you need more for Batman. That's that's very funny that
0: you brought that up because they're both super crazy when you think about that. Like that they're both very um, Michael Keaton and I never really put them both in the category like this. That's a good observation on your part. Where Michael Keaton and Mel Gibson are both very, they they have crazy levels in them that actually would make you feel uncomfortable. You know how like you'll see them both get to places where you're like, wow, like they're really kind of spacey at this moment. Like, I don't know. I don't know how I'd take that in real life. You know what I mean? Whether, you know, you got like in Batman Burton going, let's get nuts. So that fucking extreme measures movie that he's in or whatever that is, where he's like that, that, that psychopath convict dude, Um, you know, in the same way with Gibson, when he, in lethal weapon, when he's talking about how much he wants to be dead and shit, like, you know, his zany moments, you know, and that, that are kind of funny, but like they're psycho, you know what I mean? Like there's comedy in there, but you can see the psycho in his eyes. Like there's parts where Mel Gibson gets those crazy eyes and you're like,
1: yeah, there's like real
0: crazy in there. Then later you find out there was,
1: Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I mean, when you, I mean, uh, when you're toying with the idea of Batman, I mean, you, when you cast someone for Batman, you have to cast two characters. You have to cast Bruce Wayne and you have to cast Batman. I mean, it's it's kind of like um, dual personalities, okay? And the thing is that I think that if you put Mel Gibson in the Batman thing and all that, Mm. that he could be a very intimidating and and good Batman, but I can't see Mel Gibson pulling off the suave uh, Bruce Wayne aspect of the role. Not saying that Mel Gibson isn't a good-looking guy, but that's but Bruce Wayne needs more than just that. Bruce Wayne needs to... I mean, a perfect example is like Kristen Bale, okay? I think, not, yeah. Not saying that uh, Christian Bale was 100% the greatest, but the fact is you got to be able to play kind of that playboy, you know, aspect to it. I, that's why I think Michael King was the best Batman so far because I thought he... Was the only one that played a great Bruce Wayne and also a great Batman. I mean, with the yeah. other Bruce Wayne Batmans, you either got a better Bruce Wayne or a better Batman, but not many of them got close for both.
0: Well, I, I think Mel Gibson would have done the like the, the Bruce Wayne part pretty good too, because he's pretty charismatic when he wants to be. Yeah, 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 and charismatic.
1: Then- but but the thing is, you, you need more than just that. You need there's more, and you know. Michael Keaton's more of an artsy crazy, you know
0: what I mean, like an art house crazy, where like he's the he's the dude at the paint store getting upset with you, and then Mel Gibson's like the contractor construction worker crazy, where he's like the the, the fucking guy redoing your deck that tells you to go fuck yourself type deal when he's nuts and you're just like, um, I'm too old for this shit. This is a bad. <laughs> this is a fucking gun, and I'm a fucking real guy. I don't know why Danny Glover wasn't wasn't in the role for Batman. I think he would have been a better Batman <laughs> myself.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so we got, you know, co-producer of the X-Men films, uh, directed by Bryan Singer, who later directed Superman Returns more than 30 years later. Donner himself was direct, uh, directed the first one. So they had a little relationship there. He turned down Aliens 3, which I thought was interesting, later picked up by David Fincher, friend of the show, friend of the show.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Um yeah he directed one oscar nominated performance from Diana in inside moves um he was offered the opportunity to direct you know superman 4 like we said but declined i would have too little caesar was his favorite film from
1: 1931
0: that's a good movie yeah um Let's—he he considered to direct *Judge Dredd*. I could see him turning that down. Ridley Scott offered him the chance to direct Elmer and Louise*. Uh, he was keen to the shoot the film. He called the script historic, but wanted his wife to produce. You know what I mean? That was nice of him. Took that. Took that hit. Didn't return the direct Damien 2 Oh, or the, or the or the later one. You know what I mean? Anybody he, he was, but he's going to do *Superman 2, But that kind of fell through on him. At one point, he was going to direct the Flintstones movie. The best thing about the Flintstones movie is I believe there's a Sam Raimi cameo in in that one, or the first or second one. Originally intended to direct The Lost Boys, but as productions uh, languished, he moved on to Lethal Weapon, and he eventually hired Schumacher for the job. Uh, He stayed on as executive producer. You see, these are coming from times where you have two gigantic fucking heavyweight filmmakers like, you don't see people team up anymore, like the Spielbergs and shit like that. Now it would be a big filmmaker with a handful of, like, up and coming producers or, like, behind the scenes producers around him. You don't see too many people teaming up anymore. Yeah. He was considered to direct Rambo in 2008,
1: hmm.
0: which I believe the last thing he did was that 16 Blocks movie yeah. with, like, uh, Most Deaf and uh, yeah,
1: Bruce Willis. Uh, yeah, honestly, I have to say, as far as I'm concerned, that is the best movie Bruce Willis has had done in recent years. Uh, that had that, that that film had good flavor to it. Yeah, that was a really good movie. I really appreciated that.
0: I think he, I think before we talked about this before, and I usually credit the editors, but you you do get to credit the filmmakers that you see a lot of these older filmmakers make newer movies and they, they feel dated at times, but 16 blocks was one of those movies that didn't feel dated, which is what you need. You need like a master storyteller, but you need them to be able to sit down and be on the same level with a new age editor. So like they can edit it in a new way. And like, if the director is not seeing why it should be that way that they can talk it out and then both come to an agreement on what the perfect thing for it is to bring that old school and new school, mash it up. That's when you get, you know, like we talked about John Dies at the end with Don Coscarelli, the yeah. Don Coscarelli film, like that's a great film. And I think it's because you have a good director directing it and all that. And I think you got a new way, you got like a new, it felt like a dude straight out of film school kind of made it, but it, it was super good. Um, and I think that's the vibe it got As it had, you know, a masterful filmmaker sitting down with like state of the art equipment. And when I mean equipment, I mean editor, <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Like the great Alexander the Hawk.
1: Yeah, uh, not quite.
0: You know, uh, let's touch a little bit on some television. There's a lot of television shows on here that I, like the Rifleman that I'm not familiar with. I know about it, but I I should know more about it. You know what I mean? Combat, of course. Now we get to a show that I do know a lot about, 1963 through 1964, uh, which is kind of crazy that it only lasted a year, maybe two years. That show is The Twilight Zone. Yeah. Now, he didn't a lot, He was a part of a lot of, uh, not a lot, but did six episodes, of course. But the one that I want to bring up is Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, all right? <laughs> Starring William Shatner. You know, this segment is devastating. It, it made its way into the Twilight Zone movie, um, which the Twilight Zone movie, his segment stars John Lithgow, and it's the one, the demon on the wing of the plane segment truly fucking horrifying like uh if you watch uh, Donner's version you know it was done back in the 60s still super effective on a maybe not a maybe not like when you see the costume and shit maybe not on a visual level it's as effective as it used to be like when it first came out that must have been horrifying just the fact that it wasn't a human you know what i mean and it looks like it was outside of an airplane so you're like what's going on here you know what i mean Um, But nowadays the effects are kind of, you know, not as great, but the effect, dude, when they redid that segment for the twilight zone movie, the effects in that segment with Lithgow are so fucking scary to this day. I think of them and get creeped out that the demon on the wing of the plane in the movie that that's one of the few, dude, that's, are you familiar with the the, the scene I'm talking about?
1: Well, I mean, the thing is, I remember the original with Shatner, and 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 that was a classic. I think. They, um, yeah. um, while I did, I did see the Twilight Zone movie. I unfortunately don't remember the uh, that that segment being redone. I mean, I remember so, the uh, like. I think it was like what Dan Aykroyd in the car.
0: Yeah. Uh, so let me get sort so of catch up the date rope to maybe refresh your memory. Yeah, Dan Aykroyd and I think. um Fucking the dude from Taxi Driver, Albert Brooks. Yeah. And Drive. He's in great in Drive too. More modern. <clears throat> but uh yeah, it starts off they're kinda like the wraparound segment a little bit. I won't tease for anybody that hasn't seen it, but it's a great film. But the redo of the the Donner episode is this guy was this businessman on a trip, taking a plane ride, and uh he he, he look he's like nervous, uh doesn't really get it, just kinda nervous from flying, afraid of flying, and uh He's like he looks out the, wind, the window uh, in the airplane and on the on the uh, the wing. He sees this weird creature, like demon-like thing. So, what the whole the whole segment's kind of based around is he really seeing it, or is it? Is he really just a crazy guy? Because they do kind of play him off to be a little questionable with the sanity. Um, but it's one of those deals where it's like question even the insane. Like that's the moral to the story. Like don't just disagree with something because an insane person saying it, you can disregard that insane person, but don't disregard that info and don't exactly take it as truth, but it could be real. You never know. They, you know, they, they're just mirroring what they're seeing, And the whole deal is like, they, tr- they think he's just a lunatic. Sees this thing on the plane. They lock him up by the end of it. And, um, come to find out that there's something, was well, there was something on the wing, you know what I mean? So that's that creep factor. Um, if anybody who ever, it's one of those, I consider that almost like Jaws is to the water. That movie, that that is that segment is to aeroplanes. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's that creepy. He did some Gilligan's Island. I mean, it don't get much more iconic than that, of course. You know what I mean? But uh, I know we like the television shows a lot, but we're going to kick into the films because we got a lot to talk about on this channel here. Um, first up 1976 breakthrough, uh, directorial film debut, the Omen kid. Now the masterpiece, dude, the Omen is one of those films, much like the exorcist where you'll talk to somebody that doesn't like horror movies, but they love the Omen because this came from a time where you had great filmmakers making these horror films, um, David Seltzer wrote it. Gregory Peck is phenomenal in it. Lee Remick, Harvey Stevens, um, the kid who plays Damien in it is uh, perfectly casted. They redid it later in life, and that that kid wasn't as good. It could, that, the, the second kid really made you realize um, how good the first one really is. I mean, he has a great look. He's got looks like a little devil. You know what I mean? Yeah. He looks like um, a little pampered, you know, have everything spoiled, little, which I assume the devil to be.
1: <laughs>
0: um, you know what I mean? The devil, the devil would be reborn into, into the into a child of somebody powerful that would be able to put them in a good place. It, may, it only makes sense. Yeah. Um, for anybody out there who's never seen The Omen, definitely go watch The Omen. It got some horrifying death scenes in it. There's yeah, uh, I,
1: mean, yeah, I mean, crazy I mean to... visuals. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the great thing about uh, the Omen, and, and I gotta say, it's interesting. Also, it's the only horror movie that Richard Donner did, and 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 it also kind of uh, shows that when a lot of times, because I mean, as you can see, he did so many so much TV beforehand, uh-huh. but the first feature length film he did. Before he started getting into the other feature films, is a horror movie, which is I always believe that horror movies are kind of like the, um, you know, the testing grounds, you know, for a lot of uh, directors that no one's going to give them any, any uh, look until they do a a horror movie that's really successful, and and The Omen is a perfect example of that. I think
0: nobody's going to give you anything until you show them you can make a profit. In yeah. horror. As we and know, we- t- you know, every since the beginning of time, you know, everybody's been saying, oh, you want to, you want a, you know, you know, what sells the most horror movies." This is coming from a time where that was true, though, because they're being done by the right now. Now, every fucking cereal box in the grocery store is making a horror movie. So, like, it's not as precious, you know, not as unique as it once. Yeah. To the uh,
1: the. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it, the the market is saturated at this point when it comes, and of course the, and, and of course you got good ones and you got bad ones, and um and the Omen is definitely a great one. I mean, it, when you watch that, you can really see see Richard Donner, you know, really working on his craft and trying new things. Like I said before. What I always appreciate about Richard Donner is the fact that he always tried to re envision or try to do different things and make it work. I mean I'll never forget like the scene where um is it the nurse or the wife that is hanging? This is
0: all for you. This is all for you, Damien. It's his it's his um No 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 no, baby no, no. Setter,
1: there's a point where Damien's on the tricycle and he, you know oh, his not, mother yeah, knocks his mother off and she's hanging, yeah. and and he kind of like makes her fall. And the scene where she's falling against the uh, the the floor, actually from uh, from what I read, the fact was they had the what was supposed to be the floor, pretty much a wall, and yeah. they had her like on a kind of like a, a turning dolly kind of thing, so mm-hmm. she kind of turned around and went and hit against the wall, which was supposed to be the floor, and, of course, how it was positioned. There was also a cool thing where I think there was, like, a fishbowl with a fish that also fell with her. Yeah, And how they did that, I mean, you... you Very psycho. It had a very Hitchcock. It had a Hitchcock vibe to it. You you look at that, you really think, oh, my God, you know, they actually, you know, had her fall, but the fact that they did that camera trick, and you know, like, with the... uh, Paint the glass where it took off David Warner's head. Yeah, that's bad. Um,
0: that's craziness.
1: Yeah, I mean the thing is that uh, it's. I mean, it shows how talented Richard Donner was in telling the story, and how he was just great with the camera, knew how to get what he wanted, and when he didn't. I mean, this was at a time where you couldn't just jump on the computer, you know, type some code and then you know, make make it happen. Yeah. I mean, and also it, it, it really promotes the fact of that practical effects it always looks a lot better on screen than, than uh, CGI, I find.
0: And the, the, the nanny scene that I thought you were going for originally is, is iconic, too. I mean, I just think of that and I get creeped out The, the where she goes on where he's having the birthday party. Yeah. And she goes up there and she's like, this is all for you, oh, Damien. Yeah. And then she kills herself. Fucking insane, you know what I mean? Beautiful, I mean, beautiful horror. Beautiful horror, masterful.
1: Yeah. The score. And and, and, uh, like I said, I mean, I... I, and, And it's... And the thing is, I think he was smart in the fact that he didn't go back for any of the sequels and all that. Yeah. Because... The Omen itself, the movie itself, is a very well-contained story mm-hmm. that and you watch the sequels and the other re-envisioning, and it, it always kind of, ev- everyone seemed to lose a little bit of what made the first one really good.
0: Yeah. Fun fact: He also directed a couple of the Banana Splits variety hour shows too.
1: Yeah, I saw something on that.
0: They just had that resurfacing with that horror movie, which was funny. I know you. You, I think you were the one who turned me on to them. I,
1: I thought the horror movie version was good, and and it was funny because I, I mean, I didn't even know about the Banana Splits until that horror movie came out, and then so oh, this is loosely based on. And of course, the funny thing is, you look at the original, and it's like. Other than the name and, and all that, there was, you yeah. know. But, yeah, I like I said, I think The Omen definitely was a great calling card for Richard Donner to kind of say, hey, I've been doing TV for so long. Here's a feature film. This is what I can do. And, you know, and the producers were smart enough to let him go and, and uh, pick him up for it. You know, the score is haunting.
0: I also want to comment on that. The Omen has one of those. The Omen, and The Shining, have some of, of the most haunting score, most haunting scores of all time. But speaking of haunting, his follow-up, 1978 film, To the Omen. All right, this is a film that this is kind of a different vibe. He was kind of going for a different vibe for this one. Um, like I said, 1978's Superman, you know what I mean, starring Christopher Reeve, Margot Kidder, Gene Hackman, um, masterpiece in itself, you know what I mean? Superman's the first real big superhero movie, I think, right?
1: Yeah, that was the first one. Um, but I also think, now, I didn't read anything that confirmed this, so this is me speculating. yeah. I believe that probably because The Omen was the movie that he did before Superman because, I mean, one of the biggest uh, taglines is you'll believe a man can fly. And the yes. thing was, I mean, everyone knew that this was a, a big chance in the gamble and probably them looking at Richard Donner uh, with uh, The Omen with a lot of the practical and the, uh, the effects that he was able to pull off Probably, I would expect that. That's one of the reasons why they probably went to talk to Donner to direct Superman because it was another step up. Because you had, you know, uh, they had to do, uh, they had to get someone who could kind of think on his feet and and, and play with. Um, you know, effects. Mm. And of course, you know, there was a lot of effects that were created and used in Superman that we uh, used to today.
0: Yeah. I do want to bring up, uh, it was written by Mario Puzo. Now that's something I didn't know until doing research. Now, Mario Puzo is the dude who, who's known for the Godfather, writing the Godfather books. That, oh that yeah. that turned into films. Um, and I know when I, this, this gentleman's passed away too, rest in peace. But I didn't realize that this gentleman dove into more films outside of his books. I thought he was mainly known for doing writing the Godfather books and then being involved with the writing of the scripts of them. But he also did Earthquake, which was an interesting film from that time. Um, he did Superman 1, 2, 1 and 2 and 3, maybe even 4. He did uh, The Cotton Club, which was another Coppola flick. Uh, the Sicilian, um, yeah, dude, a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, a lot of it's a lot of mafia stuff, but I had no idea that that dude was tied that Mario was tied into Superman as well. Very interesting stuff. Now we can't forget Brando. That's why I kind of wanted to flip it because the Godfather himself. I wonder if there was ever any talks for Donner to do the Godfather. That's a good question.
1: Yeah. Um, this was right uh, around that I, time. I, I guess, yeah, I remember reading about you know Brando. You know, I, I, for like one day, I think he was paid like three million, four million dollars, something obscene like that. Um, he didn't even learn his lines. They just had you know, like when he's looking in the crib where you know Joelle is, uh, where um, um, L is supposed to be. They had, you know, like, his lines. Um, I gotta say, personally, my opinion, when it uh, it comes to Marlon Brando, and I know a lot of people will probably give me hate for this, Mm -hmm. but I I always thought he was way overrated as an actor.
0: Well, I, I, I can understand somebody saying that I enjoy Brando and that thing with the improv, I will say this about the improv thing, is like, a lot of the the later films that he's known for are some of the films that he's known to
1: improv in. So is that a bad thing or a good thing? Well, like, I mean, the thing knowing... is, from what I heard, that he never improved. Well, no, not like. No, I, I from what I hear is he wouldn't even read the script, and everything he did was just what he did. Well, what I what what I heard, I mean, in both Godfather and like. Um, in 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 this one, Superman, that it they just had cue cards and he read the script as it was written. There wasn't any improv. There wasn't it was, you know, as if he had a, tele, a teleprompter on. Now, I mean the thing is I enjoy improv and I give a lot of credit for improv, but the impression I always got about Marlon mm. was he was too lazy to improv. And he never improved. He just you had the script, he read the script, but he never bothered to take the time to either memorize his lines or do anything. I remember reading, uh, watching a thing behind the scenes of Apocalypse Now yeah. where, you know, uh, uh, Coppola wanted him, of course, play, you know, the uh, main char- uh, the, uh, character that he did. And, of course, he had this idea of Marlon Brando coming in, being, you know, pretty well fit and all that. And when he showed up on set, you know, he was, he was uh, big and, you know, very heavy. Mm -hmm. And then Coppola was like, okay, I'll, I'll look at this. Um, We'll change this slightly. We'll just have it that, you know, he just became very decadent, started eating and using that as a backstory. And then Marlon was like, oh no, the whole thing about him being in the dark and only seeing his face, that was because Marlon Brando was ashamed of how fat he was, okay? And he didn't want anyone to see it. And the thing is, he also had this thing where if, uh, let's say, they had him for three days to shoot. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's say it was a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And he said that if, for whatever reason, those days were pushed back, he still had to get paid for those days plus the other days that he has to shoot.
0: Well, Brando is—he very. Brando is gigantically difficult. I don't think he's—you know—I don't think he's worth the difficult that the difficult uh, nature that he put. You know, also your boy Daniel Day Lewis is fucking. Whoa, hold gigantic. on,
1: Daniel Day Lewis isn't my boy either, man. Well,
0: yeah, you're a big fan, and and I love Daniel Day Lewis, but I've heard that that dude is ridiculously difficult. Oh I—I
1: I never said I was a fan of Daniel, Daniel Day Lewis either.
0: I'm not, and I'm, we're not saying that this is true, and uh, we're just speculating that I've heard he was very difficult, and, and, and the one story that always rings out to me is when he did that My Two Left Feet movie where he pretended he was handicapped, supposedly had a dude carry him around on set. Yeah. Now, that might be a little too much. Get him a wheelchair or something. You want to improv, you want to feel it, get him put in a wheelchair, dude. Don't make people
1: carry you around. That's kind yeah. of messed up. Okay, th- this is my my belief. Okay, and people well, can make crap about it, but now different people have different ways of getting into character. Every actor has a different way of getting into the persona that they have to do, yeah. and I appreciate everyone has a different style. Now, when it comes to method acting, this is my belief. Okay. Uh-huh. If you're playing a character who is, has a life totally different from yours, or a job totally different, and and you of course want to do the best possible performance, I totally believe. Yeah, you 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 focus, you teach yourself how to do these things, but that's all prep, prep. Okay, yeah. what does prep means? That means you learn and you do all this stuff before sets. Right. Okay. Now, if you want to be on set and be kind of moody or in that that mindset, that's okay. Uh, You know, stay in character that way. But things like that, or like also I heard Daniel Day-Lewis would pick fights with people for like um, Gangs of New York and and other things. That's stupid, okay? The thing is that... You can still be in the mindset. You can, I mean, uh, we just recently talked to Keith Coogan, okay? And he talked about uh, D'Onofrio playing uh, Dawson, okay? Mm -hmm. And how, you know, he was method acting and he always kept in that, you know, mindset. That's fine. That is a great way of of method acting. But he wasn't like, you know, trying to build a car uh, because he's a mechanic uh, when he was off scene so he would, you know, stay in character and, you know, get in the way of other people trying to do their job to do uh, make sure the film works. I mean, that's the problem I have. My opinion is that all this stuff, you should do prep, get yourself ready for the character, and when you're on set, you know, Yeah, you can be in the mindset, but, you know, doing things like, oh, someone has to carry me around because I'm supposed to, you know, not be able to use my body. You do that before set. And then when you're on set, you go around, you don't get in people's way that have other jobs that they have to do, and you have a job. But you, you shouldn't be focusing on having other people, you know, cater to you so you can do your job. It's all mental.
0: And it's like you almost figure, well, you know, he gets to hang out with Daniel Day Lewis all day. That must be cool, but then you gotta go, well, if he's that in the character that he needs to be carried around, do you think he's gonna break character to have a regular conversation with the person holding him? No fucking way, dude.
1: You know what I mean? Yeah. So like now, I mean I'm I mean, like I said, if if you if the only if, if you have to sit by yourself to stay in character and you can't talk to anyone and all that. I mean, another perfect example is I worked on uh, a few projects with Robert LaSardo. Yeah, great actor. Great. And the thing is, one of the things is that those on set tell you not to go up and talk to him before he goes on on set because he has to get into character. He has to, you know, focus on his job. That's fine. Absolutely, that's that respect. That
0: that is perfect. professional. I I don't even yeah. think that should be. I know you got to tell people that, but realistically, that you
1: shouldn't because they're they're performing. You got to give them their space and let yeah. them into the place. Which is what I I definitely respect. But I will yeah. not respect if it's like, oh, I'm playing, let's say, a vampire, and you have to make sure that there's no mirrors around because. You know, I would feel uncomfortable as a vampire. I can't see myself. I don't want people to know I'm a vampire. Uh, You know, stuff like that, which is like, dude, you don't need people to change what they're doing to make the film work so you can feel like you're that character. You can do that all mentally. That's when you tell them that, unfortunately,
0: because they're a vampire, we can't pick them up with photography, so they're not going to be on the cover of the yeah. poster, and they have a fucking heart attack and die right on the spot, Then they're, they're real vampires. Um, Brenda, yeah, heart, heart of Darkness is a great documentary out there about the making of Apocalypse Now. Uh, if anybody's into that type deal, definitely check that out, because I, I, I me and Hawk, I don't think, are on the same page uh, quite yet on how he acted. I think he was... I think that he he was lazy. He showed up. It, it, um, he he yeah, was a you know,
1: lazy actor. Yeah,
0: yeah but I think he's lazy. I think. Yeah, I think there was more. I think there was a lot more. I don't know if you'd call it impre- maybe like if there was a lazier improv. If there was a term for a lazy improv. If there was a term for just showing up and going with the flow, then that's what he did. But he but at the end of the day, dude, he did that for iconic films that are some of the greatest films ever made.
1: Yeah, you well, can't argue it. You know what I mean? I, I mean, yeah, he was in some of the most iconic films ever made. But it, I mean, still, I'm. Who's to say the fact that he did, this, this as far as I'm he did not re, uh, deserve?
0: This is the deal. You hire, you hire Marlon Brando because you want Marlon Brando. Who's to say? Who's to say if you don't let him do what he wants to do? that you're not gonna that you're gonna get the performance you want. Like because he was allowed to feel so free and open, maybe that's how you got the Don Corleone, how it became out so good is because he could he could drop everything, all of his like everything and any worries. And I'm not saying it's the best way to get to this place, but if you if, if pampering the dude is what gets you what you need I work with Alexander Hawk. You know what I mean. <laughs> so I know the deal. You got to pam pamper people. Into oh, a and don't so give me bullshit. <laughs> no, you're a good man. Don't give me bullshit. You're a good man. But in the Marlon Brando thing, like it could be like that. It's like if, 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 if you know he's not, He doesn't have. To, he did. He didn't remember his dialogue. But he came in. You think of the things he did with his face. He put cotton balls in his mouth. He did like, like fucking, like like Karloff type tricks, you know what I mean? Uh, to make it to really, you know, get that look going, you know what I mean? And know the whole cadence and stuff. Like that was something that I think he he showed up with. And you can't, that was done so well that you can't really, you know what I mean? You can't really argue too much, but let's get it back into our boy Donna real quick. Uh, I had a fun story about Donna from the set of uh, Superman. Because I was on the set of Superman, in case you were wondering. Yeah, um, you played Kal-El. Kal- Kal- that's you right. Were the yeah. baby. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I was I was, I was Superman's br- uh brother. We don't talk about me. I'm the black sheep. So Gene Hackman showed up first day of set with a big mustache. Did you hear about this story in your
1: uh, I must have missed that
0: one. Which he played probably the the best Lex Luthor of all time, you know what I mean? My favorite personally. Way way better than Jesse Eisenberg. Oh, Jesse Jesse Eisenberg, you just wanted to murder. You didn't want to like... Jesse
1: Eisenberg played the Riddler. Hackman? It's
0: Lex Luthor name. Yeah. Gene Hackman ain't no Gene Hawkman, but he tries. You know what I mean? And I think he was a great Lex Luthor. Yeah, because he was charming. Jesse Eisenberg is not charming, dude. He has no charm to him, and I'm not hating on him. Hackman could charm your fucking pants off, dude. For real. Um Especially in that time. He was just charismatic and fun. And, and he even had like a he was he had a handsome look to him, which I know is very interesting, but he had like a weird thing about him. A confidence, I think, that just was it was what it was. But anyways, he showed up on set with his mustache and Donner before I guess before they got to see each other, um Donner Donner like prepared for this. I won't tell you the beginning until the end, but I guess he prepared. So Ronner Donner approached him and was like, Look, man, like mustache ain't working and he's like no nah, i like it i want to keep it and he's like i don't i don't think it fits i don't want it in the movie and he was like "No, nah, well i'm keeping it so they came to some agreement where gene Hackman goes hey if you shave off your mustache i'll shave off my mustache and donna thought about it for a second and he goes all right fine if that's what it takes so they went to the makeup room donna sat in uh uh fuck, what's his name sat in the chair Ackerman sat in the chair, they shaved off the fucking mustache. She turned to Donner and goes, Okay, your turn. And supposedly Donner peeled his mustache off because it was fake, and he said, Alright, let's go shoot. So like he treat so what happened is I think he found out about the mustache. The AD was probably like, yo, Dickie, fucking Hackman's got a mustache, dude, and they look it looks like a fucking creep stash. What's what's going on? So then he was like, I got an idea. Throw on my fake mustache. Go over there. Talk to him like everything's real. Put him in a situation where he says, You shave that stash, I'll shave mine. Get him in the chair. This is masterful directing. This is like, this is like the things that director, you're not taught in film school. This is dealing with actors, getting a vibe for how to get what you need out of people in a good way without like causing ruckus, you know what I mean? And having people hate each other. So. I always thought that was a fun story. You know what I mean? And in in, in retrospect, I go back and there's a scene in DJ Stan, the man, where the dude peels off the mustache. That was a tribute to Richard Donna. Rest in peace. Um, Next up, before we get to a film, a couple films that I know the Hawkman loves. We got actually two. uh, The Superman 2. We won't get too deep. into it because I know that he, he... it was uncredited work. He said 50% of his film, his work made it into the film. I don't know which 50%, so we're not really going to dive too deep into it. Um, Inside Moves from 1980. Are you familiar with Inside Moves?
1: No, I haven't. That's uh, one of the few I have not seen. Uh, directed, direct,
0: uh, direct, he directed it. You know, John Savage is the star of it, who's iconic. You don't see him that much anymore. David Morris is in it. Distant relative to Peter Morris from DJ Stand the Man uh diana scarwine is in this as well uh, she does something else they handicapped after an unsuccessful suicide attempt a man finds common ground in a troubled souls at a local dive bar this sounds like something that'll make you cry just from the fucking sadness there's so much sadness pouring out of that fucking description you've got a fucking a dude who's handicapped after trying to kill himself dude all right that's fucking horrifying and then where's he go to talk about all these beautiful things? The most depressing place in the fucking earth, a bar, a fucking dive bar. Uh, we, as we know, nothing but happy people hang out at bars or the people trying to get this synthetic happiness going on. But uh, I've never seen this film because it would make me so sad. Uh, that I don't know if I could I could go any further. John Savage, good times. Like I said, David Morris, good times. When I think of David Morris, I think of that uh, Rennie Harlan movie that me and the Hawkman love so much, Long Kiss Goodnight. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, he's in that. He's in a bunch of stuff. Um, but, you know, uh, that's a movie to check out. It's dark, man. It's super fucking dark. John Savage is a great dude to play someone who tried to kill himself and got paralyzed. That's all I'll say about that. But inside moves uh could be something to see. Go check it out. That'd be something I wouldn't mind seeing. But next up is a film that I know that the Alexander the Hawkman loves. Starring starring one of my favorite comedians of all time. And no, I'm not talking Jackie Gleason, baby. Um
1: What film are we talking about, Hawkman? Bring it on in, child. Bring it on in. We're talking about the toy. Oh now, yeah. No, no, here here's the thing. Now this is a movie that probably would not be... Uh, w- people would, like, riot if this movie was made today.
0: Yeah, this would be problematic nowadays.
1: Yeah. Now, it stars uh, Richard Pryor, the, the great man. Richard Pryor.
0: Fucking the man,
1: rest and, in And uh, Jackie Gleason.
0: Rest in peace. And Graham also
1: well. uh, Ned, Beatty Ned Beatty, was in Superman, also has a role in it. And uh, Scott Schwartz... Child um, actor from Christmas Story? Yeah, yeah, he's the one that like, stuck his tongue to the pole. Didn't he stick his tongue on other poles in, a, in another career? Uh, maybe. I, I, th- don't I know. think I heard
0: he went into the porno business, if I remember correctly, but I could be wrong.
1: Well, it's funny. I actually met Scott Swartz at a convention, and we talked a bit, uh, especially about the toy. that you put his tongue um, on your pole? Actually, uh, um, Swartz actually uh, was involved in wrestling he wasn't uh, a wrestler himself but he uh, i think he was a driver and and he uh, he worked with a bunch of wrestlers in that kind of respect uh, schwartz is a good dude
0: uh, i think he'd be a good commentator for wrestling i can see that
1: yeah and it was funny because when uh when i was talking to him about the toy and he said that um because everyone, you know, you've heard stories of Jackie Gleason being a real asshole and, and the yeah. pain in the ass and and full of himself. And it was funny, I asked, I asked Scott Schwartz about Jackie Gleason, and he was like, oh, Jackie, um, he was nice to me. <laughs> I can see why other people didn't like him, but right. he was nice to me. Maybe because I was the only kid, but he was nice to me. Um. Now, this is... I like this because, um, now for those who might not know the Uh entire premise of this story is that you have, uh, uh, Richard Fryer. He's, I think he's a janitor at this toy store and, um, Scott Schwartz is a rich little brat, uh, and his father's Jackie Gleason, and his, uh, his father owns the mall and the toy store, and and it's uh, it's, Scott, it's uh, Scott Schwartz's character's birthday. They go into the toy store, and Ned Beatty, who's one of the yes men of of his father, says, "You can have anything you want in this uh, store. It's your birthday." And at that time, Richard Pryor's you know dancing around, and he ends up falling around and, and and being comical. And he says, I want him. Yeah. And so, in essence, uh, they purchased Richard Pryor, gave him a hefty sum to come and, and live at the house and be friends with his young little white boy. And um, what I liked about it is that, I mean, on the surface you're looking at this and you're like, oh, this is – this is wrong, this is demeaning and all that, but it's actually at the core of it a very sweet story where you have this, you know, man who, you know, uh, which is Richard Pryor, trying not only to teach the kid, but also the father, the importance of family, the importance of you know, having a connection. And And also, I mean, as as we talked before, Richard Donner was a very big um, supporter of equal rights, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, as as it was shown when, uh, as we'll talk later in like the Lethal Weapon series, but in this one, you know, it tackles with that with that aspect, but it tackles it in in a, 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 a funny, uh, family-orientated way, mm. which, you know, you, I mean, you go and you see these rich kids and, you know, they get away with everything. Uh, and and a lot of times that the reason these kids are brats and all that is because mom and dad are too busy or whatever with their own lives that they don't give the kid the... The uh, attention, or actually the time, to try to teach them to be decent people, and when when you can have whatever you want, I mean, perfect example. He says, "I want that man over there," and you know he gets it because he gets whatever he wants. I mean, that's the child mentality. You know, I want it, I take it, yeah. and and of course with all the, you know, typical Richard Pryor humor and comedy and all that, he ends up connecting with this boy and then, you know, try to make this boy understand and become a better person. Pretty much giving this boy something that his father, Jackie B- Gleason's character, isn't giving him. Yeah. And I thought that was a really nice and fun story. I mean of course, I mean, if anyone watches it now they'll they'll you know probably give you a laundry list of issues they have with the movie I that's why I appreciated I mean I saw what Richard Donner was trying to do with the story mm-hmm. and I thought it was I thought it was well done and uh, and like I said I mean those kind of I mean it it took a definitely a, a um, taboo subject and tackled it in a family-friendly way that a child who is watching this movie can grasp the issues that we as adults deal with even now. Yeah. And that's why I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, it's a great film. You know I agree, and the same thing. You know when you say that they really can't be done today. You know I agree with you, and that's very unfortunate. You know I think of the films like these that deal with race and stuff like that. Um, Though those are these are the really important films. Like I look at films like this from the from like the '80s and '90s movies that those are the films that really started the mold and changed things for the better. You know we've often talked about how if somebody's poking fun at something or whatever. That they're they're just made they're they're drawing attention to it, which is being able to create conversation.
1: You know, yeah. What I mean? Plus, also, my my opinion, going off of what you said, yeah. is that if you want in a real real conversation about these kind of situations, the best way to do it is through comedy. Sure, because that that breaks down all of the uh you know, kind of barriers that we as adults put up if if we tackle I mean Mark Twain is a perfect example people you know get on uh, like Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer saying, well, he says these you know bad and derogatory names and words and but I'm like, yeah, but at that time unfortunately that's how people talked and Samuel Clemens knew that there was an issue with it. And he was trying in his way to put it in terms that a layman can understand, a child could understand, and then deal with it and hopefully grow as people to say, this is wrong, we have to change. And Richard Donner with the toy, I felt, was the same way where it's like, here's a problem we have with society this is through an eye of a kid and this this black man and how they you know kind of you know help how he helps this kid become a, more of a man than his father can and then of course try to build the bonding between the two of them and then go from there and, and the thing is, I think with humor, it's the, because when you try to do it as a dramatic or, you know, try to do it more serious, you, as adults, I feel like we, we can't help but put up those barriers that we have built. But when you knock down those barriers by making it funny, it loosens up and makes it more attainable as not only as, as adults, but also as children. And the way that we're going to change things is by trying to teach our children to be better.
0: Yeah. I'm yeah. with you. You know, you got in with comedy and drama, very there's a thin line between comedy and drama. And you take prior himself as such a like, gene, comedic genius, you know, definitely have to put him in top 5 he's in my top 3 but i think he should be in everybody's top 5 of best comedians of all time and that dude's life was straight fucking tragedy from begin even when he was fa- even when he had his fame it was fucking a tragic life for him you know what i mean uh, very torn tormented and torn person but let's d- d- rest in peace prior of course but let's jump into uh, the next film real quick which is a film that I know. My boy, I'm going to let him fucking roll into this one. Because my boy, his fucking name is in the title for crying out loud, dude.
1: <laughs> he fucking loves this movie, dude. What uh, movie is that? This movie is called Lady Hawk. Woo! Now, I mean, we talked a little bit about that before. And like I said, that at least from what I read, he was a big fan of fantasy films. I mean, me, myself... I'm a huge fantasy film nut. I love a lot of fantasy films, and Lady Hawk is by far one of my all-time favorites at the top of the list. And and it was funny because you know when when uh, he got it, he he wasn't really into the sorcerer and sorceress type of films, and but I forget how he ended up uh, ending up with it, but. He tackled it more as a love story, and I mean, it was beautifully shot. It was, and also another thing, as Matt said, you know, he was a big um, defender of animal rights, also, and the core of this story is, for those who might not know, is you have a beautiful woman and a beautiful man. Uh, who love each other, and because an archbishop uh, loved the woman too, and and was upset that she chose this man over him, mm-hmm. he uh, summoned the dark arts and put a curse on them. So, at in the morning, the beautiful woman is a hawk, mm-hmm. and then in and and in, in, in at night, the handsome man is a wolf. So they're always together but eternally apart, which is Mm -hmm. one of the lines from the film, which is heartbreaking. And the only time that these two can even connect as human beings is a split second as the sun goes up or the sun goes down where they can almost touch. And then, of course, they end up taking the other forms. And, of course, this is... During the 80s, okay? We don't have great CGI or anything like that. But the camera shots, the way he played with lights, and there's one shot where where he has the hawk and it's flying down and and, and it's flying over the, the water is some of the most majestic and beautiful imagery you ever see. And the music, it just... He was able to do so much. He made, even though you sit down, you look at this, you look at even Willow or Lord of the Rings or, you know, um, Never Ending Story. You look at those and you see, you know, they had puppetry or bigger, you know, characters and really, you know, bring you into that fantasy world. But in this, it was so grounded in reality of the Middle Ages of that time with that tiny little bit of fantasy of the fact that you have these people changing forms into different animals during that. And that's the only real magical fantasy element in the story. The rest of it is a heartbreaking, heartbreaking love story. And Michelle Pfeiffer and the late Rutger Hauer the two of them were great. They had great chemistry together, and that's and that's just with them to, being together by themselves was only like maybe thirty seconds, maybe a minute at the very end when the both of them are finally together as humans because the curse was broken. Yeah, that scene was just amazing, and also my personal opinion, the best film with Matthew Broderick. Yeah, it's up there. It's
0: probably uh, that and Ferris Bueller. And Elections are pretty good. Elections are pretty good,
1: Matthew Broderick. Well, I I mean, the thing is, everyone, you know, talks about, you know, Ferris Bueller and more games and Election. I mean, maybe it's just me. I've never really connected to him as an Mm -hmm. actor. Um, But him playing Philippe the Mouse in this, in Lady Hawk, was great because, um, maybe it's, because I do believe, I mean, you can be a, a decent actor, or a great actor, but you can only be as good, as the director who's directing you, mm-hmm. and I think Richard Donner, was really able to bring, what Matthew Broderick already had, to the role, and really use him in such a way, because, he was pretty much the 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 brink, the connection tissue between you know the beautiful woman and 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 the handsome man, where he's the one who can talk to her at night or talk to him in the morning and tell each other about how they feel, and he and and he was great in that role, yeah and. I mean, I've never really connected with him much in any of his other roles. I thought he did a, well, a good job, or he was decent. But Lady Hawk was the only one that I thought he really, really came into his own. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, Lady Hawk's a good flick. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I mean, I love. Uh, if you haven't seen Lady Hawk, you got to watch it. As far as my personal opinion, my favorite Richard Donner film,
0: hands down. Next up might be one of my favorites. Well, I know it's one of my favorites. Um, 1985, The Goonies, Kid. Goonies, Baby. Goonies, good enough for me. You know what I mean. Written by Chris Columbus. You know what I mean. Spielberg's story. Okay. You know what I mean? Sean Astin, your boy Sean Astin's in there. Josh Brolin, before he had his resurface in like 10, 20 years later, and now he's a big <laughs> deal again. Jeff Cohen, you know, playing Chunk. I
1: Actually, c- yeah. it's funny that you bring up um, uh, Jeff Cohen. There is a story that dropped when Richard Donner died. Oh, yeah? Jeff Cohen and Richard Donner. Which I thought was a really touching story. Yeah, um, uh, Jeff Cohen, uh, as as people know, he played Chunk in the Goonies, and afterwards, you know, uh, he found it hard, you know, getting jobs and all of that, and uh, he was going to go into college, and he uh, went up to Richard Donner and asked him can I uh, get a recommendation letter, you know, uh, for college? Because, you know, he he knew that, you know, while he enjoyed acting and all that, he didn't think that there was going to be much of uh, a huge future for him in that. And Richard Donner, instead of writing the letter, paid for his college.
0: Yeah, I heard that story. That's good stuff.
1: And if anyone wants to know, he is now an entertainment lawyer. There you go. Yeah. I, so, I wouldn't mind
0: working with Jeff Cohen. I recently seen an interview with him as when he was a kid, um, like right after, right after Goonies came out. And the interview was, he was like, he was so on, it was like ridiculous, like quick super quick-witted the dude interviewing him. it was from a different time where the dude was like talking about like him being fat and stuff you know what i mean like it it was like body shaming before everybody told people when people like even though you you never really need to know not to body shame somebody but now everybody's like oh yeah it's a bad thing you know what i mean
1: yeah but the funny thing is out of all the things you can shame someone for it's still the one that uh most people have the you know, um, easy pass on. Yeah. It's
0: It's it's crazy because it's one of the most damaging things. You know, to, to get yeah, somebody but a hard no one cares over. about
1: the fat kid.
0: Yeah, I mean, p- things that you can't really help, or like physical things that you probably don't like yourself is like the worst thing to go at Well, I mean,
1: ever. that's the thing. I mean, unfortunately, I'm being a fat kid most of my life, and now a fat adult. Um, (laughs) Most most people, uh, I mean, their opinion is, oh, you're fat. All you have to do is exercise and then you'll lose the weight. You're just too lazy to do that. I mean, I'm not saying, I mean, that's that's just how a lot of people's mentality is when it comes to. Don't they know what depression is? What the fuck's wrong with those people? Yeah, it's okay to be depressed, but it's not okay to be fat. Well, fat, I think fatness and depression go hand-in-hand. because hand, It does, it. it does. But still, that is the mentality. All, all the oh, I know. Mo- most people are like, you know, all you have to do is, you know, eat right, exercise, and you'll be fine. I'm like, yeah, it's not that easy. I mean, I wish it was. I mean, I've tried different diets. I've tried different exercises, and it never seems to really work out for me. So I'm... But anyway, uh, go on uh,
0: we all, Corey Feldman of course is in this film oh, yeah. Brad himself Doing it big You can't have a successful 80s kid movies Without the Feld dog in it, that's for sure Kerry Green playing Andy Of course, Martha Plimpton Kiyu Juan. I got an autographed uh, Action figure by him John Matusiak played Sloth Rest in peace, I know he passed uh, Around the time the movie came out I think and of course, Robert Davi, the great Robert Davi and Joe Pantoliano. And last, but certainly not least, in a gigantor rest in peace. Who I feel like this lady has been dead before we even born. That's how long she's been gone. The great Ann Ramsey. You know? I love Ann Ramsey. Her, her in the Goonies doubled by her in throw mama from the train is an iconic mashup, double feature of comedy. Um, and she's done a, plenty of other stuff, and she's great. She has a great vibe to her. Um, I would love to have met her. I bet she was a sweetheart in real life. Um, but, yeah, Ann Ramsey's the bomb diggity. The Goonies, I mean, where to start just an iconic film. It came in right around perfect time for all of us. We um, as children. We were a little bit younger than the kids in The Goonies. So, like, I think the kids that were a little younger that look up to The Goonies – would look at them as, like, the cool big brother types almost, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, we part- all
1: wanted to be part of the Goonies. Exactly. I mean, that was, you know. You take- I mean, the great thing about the Goonies is being a uh, kid that wasn't, like, with the cool kids or with, like, a real group of, you know, best friends. Hmm. Um, but, I mean, the Goonies was great because it was kind of like here you have all these different kids with different, you know, background, but they all kind of, like, became, like, one cohesive group. And, uh, I mean, I, I mean as, as, as a child, I mean, all you want to do is belong. And here you have a whole bunch of uh, kids that all kind of belonged, even though they were kind of outcasts from, like, the uh, regular uh, society. As they says, Goonies don't say die. Goonies and,
0: never say die. Yeah,
1: Goonies never say die. And uh, yeah, and, and like I said, it was it, you, you had the great adventure, you had the action, and another thing which I think is missing from a lot of movies now, which yeah. the eighties were known for. Maybe they went a little too overboard at times, yeah. but they were known for. Okay, you had these films like The Goonies where you had these kids that dealt with these adult issues by themselves. Uh-huh. You didn't have mommy or daddy or, and all that. And it, it wasn't like, you know, they were teenagers, which a lot of times you have, like nowadays, you have, oh, the teenagers dealing with all these issues with <coughs> themselves, which, you know, yeah it's all part of the course when you get older, but you had these young kids and it kind of gave us a little bit, a bit of empowerment Mm. that we could, I mean, we, we could do things without needing to rely on, you know, the adults. You know, what a villain, The the
0: Fratelli family are such villains in a kid's movie. They're so like, you wouldn't put it past anybody in this family. And they even have like the brother that they they got the sloth brother that would be like it's like the like Darren like the fucking the, the the black sheep brother like Tarantino and from Dust till dawn with the family don't talk about like that brother that's what the sloth is and even though the rest of them are all like it was crazy as I could see just as bad as Tarantino is in from Dust till dawn and I'm yes I'm talking about flash flash pictures of a of a fifty middle aged woman mother of mother of three raped on a hotel bed and then shot in the face that flash i could fit that fitting into the fratelli's backstory like that's how crazy they are the mother included it's weird like they're super dark that's a super dark uh threesome man like all those people like chunk never would have chunk never would have made it out alive like and he wasn't in the movie he wasn't they were gonna kill him you know what I mean? Like when next time you guys watch the Goonies, really pay attention to the evilness of the, that family. And it's the greatest villain of all time. And that's why it works is because you're, you're putting these group of friends up against real trouble. You know what I mean? Like going through the underground and all the stuff they got to deal with down there is real trouble, but the worst troubles up top, you know what I mean? They got the Fratellis, they got, they're losing their homes and shit. Um, it's almost got a little bit of a pan's labyrinth effect to it, where they have all this trauma that they're kind of running from, and they go into this almost fictional, you know, a pirate ship that's make believe. I believe there's a big octopus in there too. You know, it's all make believe
1: shit.
0: Yeah. It's all—it's very pan's labyrinth-ish when you think of people escapism. You know what I mean? It kind of has that vibe to it. It's funny. If Richard Donner's deathbed, he said that they just all took acid in the basement after finding the map and that they were all passed out, fucked up, and it was all in their imagination. Dude. That'd be funny. That's what the Goonies 2 was supposed to be, rehab. You know what I mean? It was a hard night of drinking. The, and and uh, there was new pills traveling around uh, Goonies Bluff out there, wherever the fuck they're from. But the Goonies is a masterpiece in filmmaking on all, all different in all different forms. But, yeah, beautiful. I think the Goonies has got to be one of his. I give it to the I I give it up to the Goonies is his biggest success I feel even bigger than Lethal Weapon because Lethal Weapon was made for a certain audience bigger than The Omen the Omen was made for a certain audience but The Goonies is a film that can be beloved by everybody who likes all those other audiences you know what I mean um yeah like your typical, like uh, like like I said um but I know Hawk
1: hates the Goonies. He's a fucking. Yeah, fan of the I don't hate the Goonies. I like the Goonies. I think it's a really good, good uh, story, and I, I enjoyed watching it. I, as I said, I mean, I still have to say Lady Hawk is my favorite Richard Donner film, but the Goonies is definitely in the top five.
0: It's good enough, photo Hawk. Next up, 1987, Lethal Weapon, homie.
1: Now, now, since since we're talking about lethal weapon, yep. I think we should talk about all the lethal weapons. Uh, we were gonna we we're gonna roll through them, but if
0: you want to go, if you want to spit through them, we can.
1: Well, I mean, the thing is that he's also um, he directed all four of them. He did, yeah. We With, should talk about is, all
0: four because only the only a, we could, we, could, we could, they're not all worth talking about that much.
1: Well, yeah, but I, I mean, I. I but I mean as we said before i'm um, uh, Richard really liked uh, I mean a, a, you know delving into a lot of uh you know issues and things that he was strongly uh, uh, opinionated about and lethal weapon he used a lot in that I mean in the second one he dealt with you know apartheid in South Africa uh-huh. he dealt with um, the transporting of illegals in le- *A Lethal Weapon* four, yeah. um, uh, In 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 the first one, you know, he really dealt with the loss of a wife and and how that kind of you know can make one unhinged.
0: Already, someone who's already unhinged break.
1: Right
0: yeah. now, one of your favorite writers, Shane Black. And Jeffrey Bowman got an uncredited on that.
1: Thing. Yeah, I love I love Shane Black. I love his writing. Um, uh, I, I love him as a director. I definitely think that uh, he doesn't get as much uh, uh, credit that he should get when it comes to you know not only writing but also directing. He has a great style and with dialogue and also how to set up action films and have, like, the actions actually be an important part of the story. So many times you sit down and you watch a film. It's a, a Marvel film. And you got, okay, story, action scene, story, action scene, story, action scene. And the thing is that while they have an excuse for the action scene to happen, the action scene is is... You can take the action scene out... Yeah. And, and, the, and all the action scenes out... And the story will still work. Yeah. But with a Shane Black script... You take out the action scenes... And it takes out crucial plot points. Yeah. So you take out an action scenes Out of a Shane Black script... It doesn't make sense. But you take it out of like a Marvel movie... It's still kind of, you know, you hit all the important points. Yeah. No, I'm with you. Yeah. But, yeah, it's, yeah it's I mean, edgy. Richard Donner, you know, and, of course, teaming out uh, Danny Glover with Mel Gibson, the two of them had great chemistry together. Wow. Um And it just, it just worked. And he was able to keep it from the first one to the fourth one and And, and uh, as, as Matt said, that each one it might not be as good as the first one or the second or whatever, but each one had good points to it. Yeah. and he always and, and and the fact is that you always could tell Richard Diner was directing those four movies.
0: That's true. because
1: he had a very distinct style, and he knew how to make it work. And I have to say I think that the Lethal Weapon when they did Lethal Weapon Four, okay, it was around the time when they decided to Die Hard Four and the other where they're like, Oh, this take these great franchises from the eighties and this do not a reboot, but another sequel. Okay? Yeah. Lethal Weapon Four, in my opinion, is the only one that was a delayed sequel that still works. Yeah, good point. Okay. Because if you take Lethal Weapon one through four and you sit down and you watch it, you can enjoy it, you can see the threads and everything works. You might think one is a little better, one's a little worse, but it all works as a cohesive family unit of films. Yeah. But you look at Die Hard no, the, the, the fourth one sucks and the rest one sucks. And then, you know, and, and the thing is, it's not cohesive to the original three. Uh, and that's the same thing with a lot of others where, you know, they're like, oh, this do a delayed sequel of this franchise. And then you're watching it and you you're like, OK, but this doesn't fit in with the original narrative. It's like with, you know, Indiana Jones. Uh. Right, that yeah, the original three were great, but you can always tell that the Crystal Skull one was done later and did not have the same connective tissue. Right. But with Lethal Weapon one, two, three, and four, it all feels like one family unit. It does. That's the five.
0: That's the feel you get when you have the same director. Like I feel if McTurnin direct, return and direct it all all the diehard movies that'd probably be on the safe wa- wavelength. You know, Rennie Harlan did part two, our boy, I believe he did part two. Maybe it was, I think it was part two. And then part three, um, which I think is really good. I forget who fucking directed that. A notable director did part three. Maybe it was Rennie Harlan, but um, he will come to me. Uh, Scrooged we have. 1988, Bill Murray's Christmas movie, Scrooged, Donner directed. Which is great. You know what I mean? One of my favorite movies to watch around Christmas time, Scrooged and Ernest Saves Christmas are two must for me. Um, you know, Bob and this is the crazy dude that works at his office. It's just a crazy, it's a real fun the dude who, who did Putting on the Ritzes in it. Um it's just a real fun Christmas dark comedy, and it is definitely dark. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely one of the best. Um, the best, uh, I would say, Bill Murray movies. Yeah, um, and and the thing is, what what uh, what I love is it's another commentary that Richard Donner made about, you know, with like, um, the, uh, Bill Murray character about making Christmas commercialized. And, you know, um, I forget the name of like the, the, like, um, Nation. Santa Claus, um, uh, like a movie that they had a trailer for. We have Lee major showing up with Santa Claus, you know, shooting, uh, off these, you know, bad guys. Yeah. And, and and I mean, I haven't seen any interviews with uh, uh, Richard Donner talking about Scrooge, but looking at his previous films and how he liked to, you know, make different... Com- that's another thing I like. He likes to take films that, you know, people will, you know, overly enjoy, but always puts in their commentary. And I think that was a very... Good commentary that he had using Scrooge about, you know, the commercialization of Christmas.
0: Radio Flyer. Uh, Radio Flyer is an interesting film. You know what I mean? Get Elijah Wood in there. Um, And his brother, I believe, was Joseph Mazzello. Um, The father was like an alcoholic. It was one of those dramatic films. And like the thing that, like they got in their wagon and they rode away in the wind And it made them feel bad, feel better that they didn't have to deal with their alcoholic father. It was like one of those movies. Um, So it's definitely, you know, uh, definitely check it out if you like that type of shit. Father reaccounts a dark period of his childhood when he and his little brother lived in the suburbs. You know what I mean? Dealing with an alcoholic father. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's nothing really. it's, It's probably a personal project for him. You know what I mean? And I remember watching that movie as a kid and as a kid feeling the emotion from it and actually getting a vibe. So I should rewatch it as an adult to see how to see how it it, it, it jives because so I remember it being pretty good at a time when a kid when I was a kid and I probably shouldn't have been even watching movies with the high fucking dramatic scenes you know like that that would be over my head regularly but um, Morris, more more uh, tales from the crypt, more horrific television stuff. Did three episodes of that. He did dig, dig that cat. He's real gone, which I believe is the Joe Pantoliano episode where he's the magician who like fakes his death and he only he has he switches his heart out with a cat, so he has nine lives, <laughs> of the cat. But he he forgets that the cat died in order to give him the heart. So during his last trick, he's in a coffin. And he's telling the story of his life. And he goes, oh shit, I forgot about that the cat dying on the table. No. And this was going to be his last big trick. But he's, he was short of life. Grateful. Just like the Twilight Zone. Great writing. Like that's such a fucking great writing. I love it. Uh, the Ventriloquist Dummy. Classic. You know what I mean? This is the one with Bobcat. Um, and, but, you know, you did Bobcat, new Bobcat from Scrooge. Um, just like he knew Pantaleone from the Goonies. Um, one of my favorite, we also got uh, Don Rickles is in this. This is the one where the, the ventriloquist go, goes to meet his idol ventriloquist to learn about him. And he finds out that it's he had a twin brother that was like his hand. Uh, like, one, like never quite fully formed. So under the dummy is an actual little person. That's why he's so good at it. Super fucking dark. You know what I mean? And uh, the other one he did was the showdown, which I believe is the Lance Hendrickson one. If I know it's, um, it's not, it's a, a cowboy one. I think this is the one where the dude thinks he's where he, he he's living in the West and he thinks he, but he's really a ghost at the end. You find out he's a ghost because like, like, tr- like, uh, like tourists come through taking pictures and modern clothes. And you find out that the whole time the dude's been a ghost, You know, well, great writing, fantastic writing. You know what I mean. After that, he did Maverick with Mel Gibson. I
1: remember that that was was
0: a big, a big flick. That was
1: fun. I really liked that one. That was a great one. Um, Big, uh, big fan of the film. I mean, you had Mel Gibson, you had Jodie Foster, you had Graham Greene, James Garner, Alfred Molina, Molina, James Coburn. Great, talented character actors, and. Dan, and Dan, it Dan. has one of the best uh, uh, look at the screen wink moments yeah. in film history. You know what I'm talking about? I think I remember the scene. Yeah, uh, there's a scene where you have Mel Gibson. He's in the bank. He's trying to get money that the bank guy owes him. And in comes this gang of you know thieves, and they rob the bank and they rob the uh, the guy he's trying to get money from. Yeah, and Mel Gibson pulls down the little. Uh, she and it's Danny Glover, and the thing is, they look at each other and then they turn away. Then they look and they're like, "Yeah." And then Danny Glover runs away, and as he gets on, on on the horse, he's like, "I'm getting too old for
0: this shit." <laughs>
1: Honestly, love that. Um, if you haven't seen Maverick, it's based on the TV series where James Garner in the movie actually plays uh, uh, uh the. The father of Mel Gibson's character, and in the original series, uh, James Garner played uh, Mel Gibson's character.
0: Yeah,
1: and it, it's it's a lot of fun. It's it's comical, and and Jodie Foster is great in that she and Mel Gibson have great chemistry. It's it's a great ride. I definitely recommend watching it.
0: Oh yeah. He followed that up with 1995's Assassins with Stallone and, uh, what's his and name?
1: Antonio Banderas.
0: Banderas, which I thought this was a great film. I loved this at the time. This was right after, I think, Desperado. This was like the follow-up for him and after Desperado. So he had that real assassin, killer type thing going for him. Uh, and Banderas is one of those dudes, dude, just fucking phenomenal. Like, a good actor. They got that presence about him. Stallone, too. You can't beat it. Um, Julian Moore is in this and she's great in everything she does. We've talked about her before. Just a really cool, fun action movie. It's pretty much two assassins that are sent to kill each other because they're so great. There can only be one type deal, or, or something, somebody's sister. I think one of them, one of them, one of them's sister was, was seeing the other and got killed because the other was an assassin too. So because of that, there was beef or something weird, um, but it's a fun. It's like a fun movie, and it's pretty. It's action packed. If I remember correctly, it was a good watch. What do you remember from Assassins?
1: Um, to be perfectly honest, uh, I know I did watch it, but I don't remember that much of it. Um, other than uh, like we, uh, like you said, Antonio Banderas and Stallone are in it, and they're both assassins trying to kill each other. But yeah, unfortunately, I didn't see much of that to to say much about it story uh it was
0: the story came from the wachowskis from the matrix films
1: mm-hmm.
0: the early their early deal they their first popping on the scene but yeah i remember assassins being real good and uh i, I must credit it to the Don that are, it comes a, next up's a movie that i heard you talk about on other podcasts recently
1: yeah and actually um also has a friend of our show uh, of our show on yes. it mr terry alexander
0: Oh, hell yeah. That's what I like to hear.
1: Yeah. And um, uh, it's a conspiracy theory. It's... uh, I I really enjoyed the film. I thought it was really well... uh, I really liked it. You had Mel Gibson. You had Julia Roberts. And you had Captain Picard himself. Patrick Stewart in a villainous role. Yeah. Um, It was one of those films that definitely... It, it was a perfect vehicle for Mel Gibson. You got Mel Gibson playing, you know, you know, a, a conspiracy theorist um, and uh, getting all wrapped in up with a uh, Julia Roberts character. And then you find out that he's not, he's crazy, but there's a reason why he's crazy. And, and uh, Patrick Stewart's the puppet master behind it. Yeah, but uh, uh, there's there's one scene I have to say about this, which I as as a fan of Richard Donner, I ha- have to bring up. There's a point where Mel Gibson's character is running away from the bad guys, and he runs into a theater, and he's hiding. Now in the theater, Lady Hawk is playing.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, and I thought that was a great little you know nod. From uh, Richard Donner to himself, having Lady Hawk on the big screen, as you have Mel Gibson hiding from the bad guys.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. Yeah, it's definitely a fun film. I definitely recommend checking it out. And uh, yeah, it has a has a lot of heart. It deals with you know, like uh, I think uh, Matt made a comment earlier about you know. Because someone might be unhinged, or, or, or what we call crazy, doesn't mean what they're saying is not real, or what's going on is not real. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and I thought it was a, a perfect example. I mean, you have this guy that you can very easily just write off as a, a crazy kook, and then you find out that he was actually closer in his crazy beliefs than anyone would really want to believe. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I support that. I know that the gentleman over Behold the Pale Podcast, they, they, they enjoy some conspiracy theories movie, conspiracy theory the movie. Okay. Uh, now, ne- next up is Timeline, which I can't say that i ever seen. i never seen this. I'm never really a Paul Walker fan or a fucking Gerard Butler fan. No offense to those people. Um, Ethan Embry is in it, which I'm a fan of to the fullest. We worked with him. He was a nice guy. Um, and Billy Conley, of course, comedian and actor from films like The Boondock Saints. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. Did you, did you check out Timeline? R- written by no. Michael Crichton.
1: No, um, I know the Timeline came out. I saw the trailer. It really didn't, you know, speak to me. Yeah. I think the idea is that you know you have some you know uh uh like a group of archaeologists that somehow I forget how they find a time machine or something like that, and they end up going back in time to fourteenth uh, century france i believe yeah. and um and of course it's kind of like you know they they have to go back there to like save a friend or save. Like, uh, uh, save someone from their time and bring them back to our time. Um, I mean, that's what I got from the trailer. I mean, it looked okay, but it didn't seem to have the same pull that most of Richard Donner films had. Definitely not for me, so I didn't end up seeing it at all. Yeah,
0: it's all right, though. Last will do 16 Blocks, you know what yeah. I mean? Which I This was a fun film, you know what I mean? Yeah.
1: Now I I have to say that as far as I'm concerned 16 Blocks is the last film that I uh, that I can definitely say that I really loved Bruce Willis in. And the yeah. thing is because Bruce Willis has made a living playing cops and diff- and detectives and all that but this is what I, I like is when Richard Donner cast him, but he cast him as a um, a uh, a cop that is kind of like you know a slob and and you know the uh, the pushover the the guy you don't expect anything you know right. the guy that you expect to you know you know steal some cocaine on the side you oh, know a shit. little skirt, skirt the um the law a bit
0: yeah he's a bad cop.
1: yeah. But the thing is that, and, 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 and the thing is that they start out with him, kind of like that, and then he's stuck in a situation where his, his partner, his, his friends on the police force, which he's done some dirty stuff with, they're going to kill this guy, that he's supposed to take 16 blocks to the cour- courthouse. Right. I mean, and the thing is, they don't like go out and uh, really say. But he sees the looks; he sees what's going on. He right. knows what's going on. All he has to do, all he has to do, is just like he's done a million times before: turn a blind eye, walk away. And you know, he does have to worry about being, you know, um, but anything. But he's, he's not this time, to. Johnny. Huh?
0: Not this time, Johnny. Huh?
1: Yeah. He decides that he's going to save this guy and get him to the courthouse, and it's and he and Moss Def have great uh, great chemistry in this, and it's I and mean, I'm happy that this ended up being Richard Donner's last film <laughs> for the fact that it's really well done, and it has such an emotional connection. Yeah. To it, where you have had the guy that everyone would expect to say, fuck this shit. Not my problem. Do whatever and walk away. And then he steps up, which is a thing that you don't see a lot of. You always I mean, at least in films, at least a lot of films I've seen. Yeah. They 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 usually don't have such a type of character as the lead character. Right. I mean, there might be a side character that is kind of like the shifty one, and then at the end he does something heroic and then gets killed. But very rarely do they have that type of character as the lead. Well, he's an antihero. You, know, yeah. you call him.
0: He's definitely an antihero. You know.
1: Yeah. And uh, I really liked it, as far as I'm concerned. Um, right now, I think it's the best film that Bruce Wills has done in his later career.
0: I agree with that. most stuff most stuff came from a rap background yeah. uh, into the acting world, you know what I mean? He's, he's really good too, and he did a great job. Yeah, overall, really good film. I liked it, you know what I mean? Yeah. When it came out, there was a lot of other movies that were, like, a lot like that that kind of had the same gimmick and marketing behind it. But I think that's one of the ones that kind of stood out among the rest of being, you know, one one good for the better, better than the others during the time type deal. Yeah. So, I think, well, you know, that wrapped it up. Uh, you know, one last, one last big rest in peace, rest in power to uh, Richard Donner, Uh Iconic filmmaker, the body of work is incredible. You know, uh, I don't think we'll ever see. I don't think we'll ever see filmmakers like that again. I think he's a lot, He's kind of some of the last of the dying breed of filmmakers that can have so many massively huge, gigantically beloved films under their belt that'll be around forever. I mean, the day that you don't get to see the Goonies, I don't think you'll be you won't be watching anything. Everybody will be dead. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Lethal Weapon, you know what I mean? The Omen, these are all films that will be around forever. You know what I mean? They might not be around as long as Timeline. (laughs) You know what I mean? But uh, they're somewhere in the timeline. No, Timeline will... Timeline. I almost wonder if there's a curse. Now, the Omen film had a curse, supposedly. And then Timeline shortened the timeline of Paul Walker's life. And then the other was... uh, there was another one. There was, oh, the Superman curse. Superman itself had a curse because the dude got paralyzed. And Margot Kidder, who's super sweet. Um, I know I got a chance to meet her at a convention once. I don't think Alex was with me. But uh, Sean was with me from Behold the Pill podcast. Yeah, and, uh, um,
1: a- yeah I, I I didn't talk to her. I did see her at a convention once. But unfortunately, it was... One of those that I didn't have a lot of time in. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, rest in peace to her as well. Yep. You know what I mean?
0: So, hey, that was the first, uh, the first episode of our check in the Gate with uh, Richard Donner. Next time we'll be a different director. But today it was Richard Donner. We got nothing but love and respect for the man. Rest in peace. You know what I mean? Job well done. I tip my hat to you. You did well. And uh, if you like this episode, check out more episodes of this shows and shows like it uh, on the Boombastic Media. You can check us on YouTube on the Boombastic Media. There's Facebook pages, social media. Um, Go pop in. We got, you know, the Shock Treatment Show. There's Behold the Pill Podcast, Mostly Ghostly. And then we have the Boombastic Cast. There's new shows coming all the time, new episodes every week. If you want to support, we got the Boombastic Streaming Patreon page where you can get podcasts and film-type deals for different perks. And, uh hell yeah, thanks for your support. Thanks for listening. Go watch a Richard Donner film and celebrate the life. And with that, we'll catch you all on the next episode of the Boombastic Cast.
1: Peace.